Noon to you on Lord's Day 47 of the Heidelberg Catechism, page 561 of your book of praise. Question and answer 122. And here, of course, we're dealing in this last part of the Catechism with the Catechism's explanation of the Lord's Prayer. And in Lord's Day 47, we come to the first petition. What is the first petition? Hallowed be your name. That is, grant us, first of all, that we might or may rightly know you and sanctify, glorify, and praise you in all your works, in which shine forth your almighty power, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, mercy, and truth. Grant us also that we may so direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised thus far. After the proclamation of the gospel, let's sing together from hymn 63, the stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you pray, what do your prayers look like? What sort of structure do they have? What kind of order? Maybe you've never really seriously considered those kinds of questions, you know. Many people pray without giving any thought to order or structure or sequence. They just talk to God. They tell Him what's on their minds. They bring their needs before Him. They simply let it all roll out. In a way, they kind of just ramble on and on and on. And then there are those people who, when they pray, take a different approach because they always have a shopping list. Praying for them is not much different than going to Costco and shopping. It's like saying, Lord, I need this, I need that, I would like you to do that for me, I would like you to do this for me. You know, fundamentally, it's an approach which is all about getting getting God to give you what you think you may or may not need. Another kind of approach to praying is the use of form prayers. You know, some believers stick to the tried, I wouldn't say the true. Every prayer is the same, morning, noon, and night. It doesn't matter whether it's health or sickness, good days or bad. It never varies. The same words and the same phrases always, always roll off their lips. Prayer is like a kind of rote, automatic pilot phase. Well, beloved, that's just a short overview, and I'm sure that you can find different things to say about prayer, but, you know... It strikes me that we have either the spontaneous approach or we have the wants approach or we tend to have the standardized kind of approach. And which is correct? Well, a good look at the Lord's Prayer would say that all of these approaches are really in question. For a careful service or survey of the Lord's Prayer shows us that our Savior Jesus Christ, who, by the way, gave us this prayer, who invented this prayer, 
believes in structure and careful thought beforehand. You know, spontaneity is good for many things in this life. But I dare say it's not the way to build a healthy prayer life. In addition, this prayer teaches us that it's not also about always us and our needs. That's not a healthy shopping model either. Of course, our needs are important, but they shouldn't dominate. They shouldn't always be at the top of the agenda and the first thing that we think about. And finally, this prayer also teaches us that it's not the only divinely approved model. Some people think it is. They pray the Lord's Prayer over and over and over again, and they never pray anything else. But that's not why the Lord Jesus gave you this prayer. It's not to be used like that. You're to examine it, you're to learn from its structure, from its pattern, and you are to pray in harmony with what you discover when you look closely at this prayer. And so, beloved, let's look a little bit more closely. I preached to you on the theme, Hallowed Be Your Name. I'm going to tell you that this particular petition teaches us to think, first of all, about God's person, then about God's works, and finally about God's praise. Well, beloved, if you look at this prayer, this model prayer that the Lord Jesus teaches us, you can see very clearly that it's, first of all, not about us, it's about God. The first petition stresses the name of God and the need to concentrate on it. The second petition stresses the kingdom of God and the need to pray for its complete and triumphant coming. The third petition stresses the will of God and the need to pray for its doing and its implementation. And so really in the first place, what you have in this prayer is God, His name, His kingdom, His will. That's primary. But then if the first principle of prayer, which you saw last time in Lord's Day 46, is about getting the address right, the second principle is about getting the order or the sequence or the priority right. And here the Lord Jesus is saying and telling us, make sure that you begin with your heavenly Father and with the things that concern Him. Yes, and when we heed that instruction, we shall find ourselves, first of all, dwelling on the name of God. You know, true praying starts with thinking about God and about His name. In other words, who is this God that we are praying to? What is He all about? What does He represent? What kind of personality is this? And that's the first thing of prayer. And, and to show you that is the first thing of prayer, look, for example, at a number of illustrations in Scripture. You have, for example, David's prayer when he, after he's listed all the materials that he's provided for King Solomon later on to build the temple. And you find this in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power. And the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. 
Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. Now, O God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Do you hear how God dominates the beginning of that prayer? Or what about King Hezekiah, for example, in 2 Kings 19? O Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heavens and the earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. O Lord our God, deliver us so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Another prayer in which God is praised and magnified for who he is. Or what about Jeremiah? In chapter 32, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You showed love to thousands, but bring the punishment of the fathers on the sins and the lapse of their children after them. O oh, great and powerful God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Beloved, all of these prayers, and a lot more that you can find in Scripture as well, really teach us one important lesson, namely that when we pray, we need to begin with God, with who He is, with His person, with His name, with His reputation. We need to concentrate and remind ourselves who it is that we're praying to. You're not praying to the wall. You're not praying to a human being. You're praising to the God of all the earth. And so we need to consider him carefully, humbly, piously. And then we pray. And we, when we pray, and that's maybe a good thing to do, is when you pray, think about one of his qualities and dwell on that for a few minutes. And then acknowledge that truly he is your father. It has to be personal, right? This is not just an abstract theological exercise, folks. How do you speak to your father if you have a good relationship? Well, that's an indication how you should speak personally and directly, but with much more esteem to your Heavenly Father. And then when you do that, don't forget to teach it to others, to your students, to your children, to your fellow believers. You know, fathers in the home are supposed to make sure that their prayers are right so that their children may learn to pray right as well. But of course, beloved, at the same time, it should be said that all of this does perhaps require some deeper digging on our part and some serious reflection. 
I'm not sure how much time we really spend thinking about who our God really is and about all of his qualities or attributes or characteristics. You know, if you're really going to pray to God and praise him, you've got to know who he is, right? Some years ago in one of my congregations, the, there was a Bible study group, and, and they decided that what they were going to do is they were going to spend the whole season just concentrating on the characteristics or the attributes of God. They used J.I. Packer's famous book, Knowing God, as a help for that. And you know what the result was of studying God's justice, God's love, God's mercy, God's goodness, and all the rest of it? It was a deeper, richer prayer life. Because the problem is that we little people too often think little thoughts about our God. And we little people need to think big thoughts about our God. But then, beloved, this petition talks not only about God's person, but also God's works. That hallowed be your name, that's a a rather broad designation. It not only talks about the person of God, it also refers to the works or the reputations of God, who God is, what he represents. If I say the name Microsoft, then a lot of the young people here will say, oh, that's a, that's a huge software company that's in Seattle and that builds all kinds of stuff that we use and sometimes we don't even realize we're using it for our computers in order to communicate and to send messages and emails and all the rest of it. So that word Microsoft is not just a physical entity. It also conveys a certain message, a certain reputation. Well, so it is with God. The name God should represent something. It should represent especially the great deeds of God. For example, when you think of of God, there are three things that actually should dominate your prayers. The first is that this is the God of creation. The creator God. And of course, we don't need much digging to find proof of that. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place. Or Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Or Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord and everything in it. The world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. It's good to think about God, the Creator. I don't think they're around anymore. Maybe they are. Some of you may be able to tell me. But I remember growing up in Ontario and being at Young People's Society and There we watched a series of films by Moody, Moody Science Films. And what each one of those Moody Science Films did is they examined a particular part of God's physical universe and showed how complex and intricate it is. 
For example, they studied water. And water is something we all need and we all take for granted. But do you know how complex water is? They studied bees. They studied the human eye. No matter where you look in creation, if you dig a little deeper, you see the power and the majesty and the beauty of God's creative work. And you come away awestruck. So we need this sense of God as the great creator. What we see and what we experience in the birds and in the, in the mountains and the hills and the rivers and the valleys isn't a product of chance or of accident. It's the signature handiwork of the Almighty, the great creator I am. And so there's the God of creation that we may think of when we think of his name. But there's also the God of history. You know, this God of ours, he doesn't just make something X number of years ago and then forget about it. He doesn't just program it and put it on automatic pilot and expect it to take care of itself. Now he continues to govern and to rule over all things. Because he's sovereign. Isn't that the message that Paul, for example, the Apostle Paul, he goes to Athens. He goes to the education capital of the world and there he, in Athens, he announces, the God who made the heavens and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands, by the way. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live, where they should exist. Who is Lord of heaven and earth? Who made every nation? Who tells the nations where to live? It's this God of ours. He controls history. And I know we have our questions about how he controls history and the kind of characters he uses and the kind of developments that we see happening. But there is no doubt, Scripture says, that God is in control. I sometimes compared it to a a work of modern art. You know, sometimes when you see a work of modern art, you, you stand in front of the painting And you say, what in the world is that? I can't make head or tails out of it. I can't make any rhyme or reason out of it. There's no sense with it. But then you look at it from a totally different angle. And all of a sudden, everything begins to fall into place. And that's a bit like God and how he orchestrates everything in this world. At the moment, we can't understand it. But there'll come a day when we'll have a better vantage point and we'll see exactly what God has been doing throughout the ages. 
And sometimes you see that in your own life, right? When you're faced with all kinds of challenges, you don't know what they're good for. But when you later on look back, you say, oh, I I begin to understand why that happened and why that didn't turn out and why that succeeded. You get an inkling of what it's all about. See, God is the God of creation. God is the God of of history and of the nations and of the peoples. But above all, more than anything else, of course, Scripture says God is the God of salvation. This God of ours, He creates and He governs. And more than anything else, He saves. And by the way, He didn't have to do it. You know, when Adam and Eve decided to go down their own road, God could have said, fine, bye-bye. I'm going to a different road. I'm going to start all over again. I'm going to wash my hands of this creation, and I'm going to just start a new creation. God could have done that. But he doesn't do that, does he? No, God instead sends a promise in Genesis 3.15 about the coming of a great head crusher who's going to bruise and kill the head of the serpent. And, and no sooner does that promise ma- made than, than God starts working on the coming of the great Savior, Jesus Christ. Why is Noah spared? Why is Abraham chosen? Why is Israel set apart? Why is a, a remnant preserved during those murky, muddy days of the kings and the prophets? And in the fullness of time, we see Jesus Christ crowned with glory and honor. Yes, Jesus the Christ, the anointed, the redeemer, the great mediator. How great are the works of the Lord. But you know those works, they climax most marvelously in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of this, beloved, deserves a place in your prayers. This God who created you, this God who keeps you, this God who saves you, It deserves primacy of place in your prayer life. When you talk to him, don't forget who he is, what he's done, what he does, what he will do. And don't stop there either. It's important that when we pray this petition, we not only know who we're praying to and who we're praying about, but also to realize this isn't the end of the story. Those who want to sincerely pray this first petition also need to live in harmony with this petition. You know, in that connection, the Catechism reminds us, grant us also that we may so order and direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. How does one blaspheme the name of God? Well, that's really asking, how does one bring to God discredit, insult, injury, and so forth. And you know that 
And it's not so hard. Lots of people have done it. I think of a Cain who decides to murder his brother, an Esau who despises his birthright, an Eli who can't ever get a grip on his sons, a Saul who goes his own conceited, pride-filled way, a Jezebel who promotes the cult of Baal, a Ananias who, along with his wife Sapphira, lies to the Holy Spirit. Throughout the ages, so many people have been guilty of bringing down, blaspheming the name of God instead of lifting it up and putting it on a pedestal, as it were. And we need to be aware of that. You know, the real damage to God's name isn't being done by unbelievers. It's being done by us who claim to be believers. If you say to somebody at work, you believe in Jesus Christ, and your conduct and your actions at work are completely and diametrically opposed to what Jesus Christ teaches and stands for, then we got a case of blasphemy. And we're not honoring him. And we're not honoring and living in step with his first petition. And we're not realizing that we're not living as God's children. You know, you and I, if you've been baptized, and you've all been baptized, I believe, we all wear the name of God on our foreheads. We've all been baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I know we sometimes look at that as a ritual, a church sacrament, and we kind of distance ourselves from it. But if you think it through, what a privilege, what an honor. What a comfort it is to know that God is your God, that He claims you, that you belong to Him. What a blessing to be on the receiving end of his promises and assurances. You know, sometimes when we have debates with people who don't believe in baptism of adults, or of children, I should say, we have this this debate about what's the difference between being baptized and being dedicated. And there are many Christians walking around thinking, well, being baptized or being dedicated is really the same kind of thing. It's not. It's fundamentally different. It's not the same at all. And well, in what way is it different? Well, in dedication, what is dedication? It is the parents requesting to take their child up to the front of the church in order to dedicate that child to the Lord. And they say in front of the congregation and to the Lord, we promise to do this and this and this for this child in the hope and expectation that when this child is old enough, this child will say, hallelujah, I belong to the Lord. And it's done in all sincerity, I don't doubt that. But think about it. What is baptism? Baptism is where God 
comes to this child or this adult who comes to faith later on in life and says, you're mine. I claim you. Your stamp, my stamp of ownership is on your head. You belong to me. And I will do for you whatever you need in this life and in the life to come. You see the difference? In dedication, parents, well-meaning promise, parents make commitments and promises. But in baptism, God is first. And he commits himself to that child and to its well-being. And so we need to realize what a privilege it is to not only know the name of God, but also to claim the name of God as far as our own lives are concerned. As children of God, we bear the name of God. And because we are honored and privileged and esteemed in that way, our lives should reflect a new obedience. But of course, saying that and living that are two different things, right? You get up in the morning, I'm going to live for God today. Everything I say, I do, I think is going to be for God. And what happens? Before you know it, you've said this word that you shouldn't have used. You've followed this action that you shouldn't have done. And you've got this thought running around in your head that you shouldn't be thinking. You want to do and honor the name of God, but you, you can't in so many ways. So what do you do? Give up. Scripture says what you do is you look to Christ. And you remind yourself that here I'm supposed to honor this great God and I can't do it. But I have a Savior. And He's done everything perfectly. He's, he's honored the Father in every way imaginable. And there aren't any flaws or any mistakes in how He's honored the Father. And I can go to Him and He'll take His good deeds and apply them to my often motley life. That's what Christ does. And again, what Christ does is a provision of God the Father for us. For us stumbling bumbling believers. And not only Christ, but the Holy Spirit too. You know, sometimes we really want to talk to God, but we're not all Cicero's and Cicero's and eloquent speakers. But that doesn't matter. Paul says wonderfully in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit will help us 
And when we can't find the words, the Spirit will find the words. He'll help us to pray this petition when we really can't totally pray it ourselves. The Son will cover our sins. The Spirit will give weight and substance to our words. And so we're blessed. And so, beloved, when you pray, when you pray, hallowed be your name, think about these things. God, the Father, the object of your prayers. God, the Son, the mediator of your prayers and the Savior. And God, the Spirit, the enabler and perfecter of your prayers. Praise God, this God, indeed, from whom all blessings flow. Amen.